Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. pray. Let's pray together. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We want to glory in your name this morning, Father. We've just sung of that glory, the glory of the incarnation, that the word became flesh. Jesus Christ, our Savior, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Glory be to God. And now, Father, we come to Your Word and we're asking, Holy Spirit, that You would show us glory this morning. Would You take the truth of Your Word and would You write it on our hearts this morning? Spirit, as we are nearing the end of this study, this amazingly wonderful book, we pray that the truths that we have learned and heard and been reminded of may it shape and change the way that we live. May it conform us more into the image of your Son. And so now, do your work in us. Open our eyes and ears, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you don't have a Bible there, Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 is where we're going to be. There's some in front of you in the pew rack if you need one. As we are approaching now the end of our time together in this study of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that you may or may not have realized at this point is just the sheer amount of theology that is contained in this book. Ecclesiastes is a very theological book. In fact, here's just a sampling of some of the theological categories that we have seen so far in this study. The preacher, first, he has given us a theology of creation. A theology of creation. We've seen that despite his realistic and some might say his even pessimistic views of life, that this book actually has a very positive view of creation. That creation is a good gift from God. It is meant to be enjoyed. And yet we've also seen that this creation, Solomon tells us, is fallen. It is corrupt. It is subjected to futility because of sin. 38 times we've seen that refrain, vanity. It is brief. It is short. It can feel meaningless and fleeting. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. So we've seen a theology of creation. We've also seen a theology of sin. Man's heart is evil. It's been corrupted by sin. Chapter 7 Verse 29, Solomon tells us there, he says, See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright. He made him good. He made him perfect. But they have sought out many schemes. Man has fallen. He is now bent towards sin. Chapter 8, verse 11, The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. We've seen a a clear theology of sin. 
We've also seen a theology of suffering. That because this world has fallen, it is also full of various hardships and injustices and evils. And this is just how life is now here under the sun. The theology of suffering. Solomon also, we've seen, has what we might call a big God theology. He has a very big view of God. We've seen the transcendence of God, that He is to be feared with reverence and awe. He's spoken of the sovereignty of God and of the providence of God, that He is absolutely sovereign and He is providentially weaving all of the threads of this life into this beautiful tapestry and He will make everything beautiful in its time. He has a big God theology. And there's a whole host of other theological topics as well. The theology of work, a theology of relationships, a theology of joy and possessions and money and death and the afterlife. I mean, these are just a few. But this morning, here in chapters 11 and 12, as we're nearing the end, Solomon has yet another important category he wants to introduce to us. And it's one that you may have never been taught before. One that perhaps isn't taught in many churches by many pastors. Because this morning, he wants to address a theology of aging. A theology of how to grow old. Have you ever thought about that before? Is there a biblical way to age? What does the Bible have to say about growing old? Because the reality is that we don't like to think about growing old, do we? No, the, the fact is most of us, we try to avoid it, right? We, we want to slow down the aging process as much as we possibly can. For example, in an article back from 2013 that said that, so this is 2013, in one year alone, Americans spent $10.4 billion on elective cosmetic surgeries and Botox, $100 billion on liposuction, $800 million on hair transplants, and $11 billion on vitamins and supplements. The fact is, the article goes on to say that often marketing strategies show how only the young and the beautiful are in advertisements and magazines, right? Even the old people in those don't look very old, do they? And how we try so hard to ignore and delay aging with medicines and diets and hair coloring and workouts and special creams. Why? Well, because we want to stay and look as young as we possibly can for as long as we possibly can. Because we don't like to think about the idea of aging. Which makes sense, right? If, if this life is all that there is, if there's nothing beyond the grave, makes sense. But, if our hope is ultimately resting in Christ who has conquered death, and there is a life and there is a kingdom that is to come, then it will have a radically different effect on your outlook of life and death and aging. In fact, here, notice in chapter 11 and verse 8, he's going to speak here first. He's going to give us some advice of what it looks like to age well. In chapter 11, verse 8, he's going to speak here to the older folks in the room. Look there in verse 8. He says, so if a person lives many years, 
Let him rejoice in them all. But remember that the days of darkness will be many. And then notice over in chapter 12, in verses 1 to 8, he's going to very poetically describe the aging process of what it looks like, what it feels like to grow old, and then ultimately to die. But not only is he going to speak to the old, he's also going to speak to the young as well. This, this of course, would be youth, children, teenagers this morning, but also, I think, young adults in their prime. Basically, anyone who isn't dead. Chapter 11 and verse 9, look there. He says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Or in verse, chapter, one, verse, chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. So again, he's going to speak here, notice, about how to live as a young man, how to live as a young woman, how to live in your youth, how to live in your prime, but how to live even when you're old and to view life that way, your future and getting old. So this sermon this morning is for both the young and the old. So young people, listen to me. You may not have listened to any sermon in this series, but you need to listen up this morning because he's going to speak directly to you. But not only is he going to speak to the youth, he's also going to speak to the older folks. And he's going to say, you're not off the hook either. No. Because there, there's plenty in this passage that he wants to say to you about aging, about young, being young, and about being old, and how to live the few days of this life that you have left. And how not to waste your life. How to live for the glory of God. So three headings I want you to see this morning as, as we walk through this passage. There's several commands here in this text. Remember Solomon, he's turning now at the end here from reflection, observation to exhortation. So there's several commands, but I see three overarching commands I want to give you that summarize them all, and they're going to form the three main headings this morning. Let me give them to you. Number one. We live by faith in the providence of God. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. We live by faith in the providence of God. Number two, we rejoice in the days that God gives to us. Chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. Rejoice in those days. And then finally, number three, we remember our Creator as we age. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. So several commands here, as we'll see. But these three, I think, form the main three that I want you to see this morning. So first, I want you to notice with me that we live by faith in the providence of God. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Notice here there are several proverbs and several commands that Solomon gives. And some of them, maybe as we read a moment ago, are a little hard to make sense of upon First glance, the, the meaning isn't perhaps abundantly clear. And so, in order to make sense of these, let me just make a few general observations here. First observation, notice in verses 1 to 6, there are four commands he gives. Four commands. Look there in verse 1. He says, cast your bread upon the waters. Not abundantly clear what that may mean yet, right? And then in verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight. Again, a little bit strange there. 
And then notice down in verse 6, the two remaining commands. He gives a positive and a negative one. Positively, he says, sow your seed because you don't know what will prosper. And then negatively, he says, withhold not your hand. So those two commands there, positive and negative. So notice these interesting proverbs and, and commands that he gives. And what are all of these commands about? Well, notice they're all about taking action. They're all about doing something, right? Casting and giving and sowing and not withholding. That's the first observation. Notice the second observation, though, about these commands. Notice how these commands are accompanied here by acknowledging the reality of our human limitations, our limited knowledge. First, notice here there are some things that we know that Solomon mentions, some, some natural realities, some laws of nature, uh, some regularities that we often see in life. For example, look there, verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, then what? It rains, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, uh, you don't need a weatherman to tell you that, right? They, they empty themselves on the earth. That's what clouds do that are full of rain. Or look in verse 3. Picture a forest. If a tree falls in a forest, no one's around to hear it. No, that's a different thing, right? If a tree falls in a forest, it's not going to get up and change directions. It's not going to say, well, I'd rather lay to the north. Or I'd rather lay to the south. No. Verse 3, if it falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it lies. We understand that, right? We get that. You don't need a degree in physics or meteorology to understand these things. But, Solomon says, there are also many things in this world, there are also many things in life that we don't know, that, that we can't predict. Hasn't that been a major theme that we've seen in Ecclesiastes? The, the uncertainty of life. In fact, look there in verses 1 to 6. Notice he repeats it three times. You do not know. Verse 2, you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Meaning, you don't know what disasters, what tragedies may strike. You, you can't know. You can't predict them before they happen. But look there at verse 5. He says it twice. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. We, we, we don't know how babies are formed in the womb. Yes, we may have some more technological advances than Solomon did in his day, like 40 sonograms and amazing things like this, but we don't ultimately know how babies are formed and life is given. It is a mystery to us. And he says in the same way, you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In other words, Solomon says, God's providence is often a mystery to us. We don't know oftentimes what he's doing. We don't know what he's up to. We don't know why he does things the way that he does things. We can't see the big plan. Yes, we have some knowledge, but it's limited. Or look in verse 6. In the morning, sow your seeds 
and in evening withhold not your hand. Why? For you do not know which will prosper. I mean, you can, you can sow seed, but ultimately you don't know whether or not it's going to grow. Right? We just don't know. And so this life, it can be unpredictable. This life can be uncertain. There are too many variables that we can't control, too many things that we can't account for, and thus, while there are a whole host of things we know, there's a lot we don't. I think a passage that has really helped me here personally when, when struggling with the mystery of God's providence is Deuteronomy 29.29. Here's what Moses says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Meaning that there is certain things that God has revealed to us here in His Word. Revelation. And yet there are a whole host of things, beloved, that He has not revealed to us. And we don't know. And that's life under the sun. And Solomon says, you don't know. And so let me ask you then, what might be, what might be the possible end, the negative results of this lack of knowledge, this lack of information, of, of realizing that life can be very unpredictable and very uncertain and tragedy could strike you at any moment and death could happen at any time and that your future is completely unknown. What might be our response? It seems to me that the response then would be that we become paralyzed by fear and indecision and apathy. We become fearful of the future. We become worried. We become anxious. We let the uncertainties and the what-ifs of life lead to indecision and hesitancy and apathy and fear. I mean, do you know people like this? Maybe this is you. They, they're just so gripped by the fear of the unknown. In fact, I think that's what Solomon means there. Notice in verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, you can watch the Weather Channel all day long, just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the perfect time, the right time, right, to sow that seed and never do anything. Be paralyzed by fear and the unknown. Or we could even have this mindset, my brothers and sisters as Calvinists, we could have this mindset, well, if God is sovereign and I can't change his plans, what's the point? This leads to apathy and fatalism and giving up. Nothing matters then, right? So what's Solomon's advice to us? How, how, how do we live then this life amidst all of these uncertainties? And, and I think if we were to summarize it here, Solomon would say, here's what he would say, live by faith. Live by faith in the providence of God. Or you could say it like this, work diligently 
trusting God despite all the uncertainties. Trust him and get to work, is what he would say. Notice these commands here. Command number one, look there. He says, cast your bread. Send your bread, verse one. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. That seems very strange to us, perhaps. What was the first thing that came to your mind? The first thing that came to my mind, I remember when I was young and my dad would take us to the park and we would feed the ducks bread, right? Casting bread upon the water. And so as I read that, I thought, huh, and then you will find it after many days. Like soggy bread? Who wants that? Right? What do you mean, Solomon? Well, scholars divided here on what it means because it isn't abundantly clear from the context, but I, I think the main idea, the main thing here in verse 1, and you'll see it again in verse 2 and in verse 6, is be willing to take risks. Live by faith. Step out in faith. Don't live in fear. Because God is sovereign. Or let God take care of the mysteries and let us step out and live boldly and courageously in faith. I think that's what he means here. Verse 1, cast your bread upon the water. Some think Solomon is talking here about taking risks and giving money or food to uh, the poor. So this would be actual bread, right? So casting your bread is, is, is giving, right, bread to the poor. So in other words, be generous. Give liberally and you will find it after many days, meaning it will bear fruit. It's not going to be in vain. Others suggest that this has to do with ancient sea trading. Sea merchants, which we know according to 1 Kings chapter 10, Solomon knew this very well. One commentator writes, he says, sea trading was a risky business, especially in those days, and the owners had no idea how their ships and their goods were faring. Cast your bread upon the water. So he could be saying, ship your grain, ship your goods across the sea. At times, you need to take bold risks. I borrow the old investment slogan, nothing ventured, what? Nothing gained, right? So cast your bread on the waters. Don't live paralyzed by fear. But trust God and act. Which leads to the second command in verse 2. Look there. Give a portion. Verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. In other words, take risks. Don't be foolish, however, in how you do this. There, there I think, is a caution here. We might say it like this. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Another investment slogan. I don't know these. I had to look them up. Diversify your investments. So perhaps he's saying spread it out. He's saying be careful. Calculated risk here. But give generously. Because look in verse 2. Seven. Right? This is the number of fullness. Completeness in the Bible. So seven or even eight means go beyond that. So give generously. Courageously. In faith. Why? Because you don't know what with disaster may happen on the earth. You don't know what's going to happen. Which leads to the third command. Look there. Sow your seed. And don't hold back. In the morning sow your seed. And at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper. This or that. Or whether both alike will be good. 
Meaning, I think here he's saying so liberally, so generously in many different places. Why? Because you don't know how it will grow. You don't know where it will grow. You don't know if it will grow. One commentator says, precisely because of the uncertainty and because you don't know, you ought to use every opportunity, sow your seed in the morning and in the evening, to use every opportunity to work boldly. So trust God who will make it grow. This is fuel with faith in action. Now, there's, I think, a lot of wisdom here, right? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of wise advice for investments, financial planning. I mean, you could take this and, and you could apply it in that way. But, but church, I, I want to submit to you, as in the rest of this book, that Solomon has something else in mind. No. He has in mind how you will live your life with eternity in view. Above the sun. That's his view here. What are you living for? What are you doing with what God has given you? Are you living for this world alone under the sun? Or are you living your life in light of eternity that is coming? In fact, Jesus himself spoke repeatedly of this same theme throughout the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 25, if you remember, he tells the story of a rich owner, a parable, who goes on a journey. This parable of this man going on a journey, but before he leaves, he entrusts his servants with talents, with riches and his resources, right? And the first one, he, he trades and he makes more. The second one works hard and he doubles what he was entrusted with. What about the third? He does nothing. Why? Fear. The unknown. And who was it, Jesus says, that did what his master commanded? Who was the faithful servant? It wasn't the third guy. And friends, Jesus' point there isn't primarily about how you manage your money. No. His point is, are you going to spend and invest your life for the sake of the kingdom? Are you going to live by faith? And are you going to step out in faith risking for the sake of the kingdom? What are you going to do with the life and the time and the resources that God has given to you? And as you sow and you sow and you sow the seed, are you trusting that God's going to cause it to grow? Philip Ryken in his commentary, he says this. He says, God invites us to be venture capitalists for the sake of the kingdom. I love that. Venture capitalists. This is not exclusively or even primarily about money, he says. It is about having the holy boldness to do seven or even eight things to spread the gospel and then wait for it to come back to you. Some of the things that we attempt may fail or at least seem to fail in our time. Some of the ministries we start, churches we plant, efforts we make in sharing the good news but we should never stop investing with the gospel in as many places as we can. Whenever we engage in kingdom enterprises, God will often use it to save people's souls. And brothers and sisters, that's a life well lived. 
living beyond the sun. Stepping out in faith, trusting God, and you may never see the results, but it will come back. I think I told you the story of Luke Short. He lived to the ripe old age of 103. <laughs> and he was converted to Christ at that age. Died shortly thereafter. And he was converted while sitting under a tree reflecting on a sermon from the Puritan John Flavel that he had heard preached 83 years before that. That's a long time between sowing and reaping. Young people, what are you going to live for? Are you going to live for yourself or are you going to live for the kingdom of God? Older ones among us, what are you going to do with the remaining time, the remaining days you have left? How are you going to invest? Are you going to invest in your church? Are you going to invest in your small group? Are you going to invest in your grandkids? We live by faith in the providence of God. That's his advice. Working hard for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, for what will be eternally rewarding. Here's the second. We rejoice in the days that God gives to us. Verses 7 to 10. We rejoice in the days that God gives to us. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm starting to sound like a broken record. Friend, do you realize that God has only given you a certain number of days. I mean, do you really believe that? He has already sovereignly determined before any of them happen the number of days that He'll give you. So far, if my math is right, I've been alive over 14,000 days. And I have no idea how many I have left. And so, what are we to do in those remaining days? And look here, Solomon says, we rejoice. We rejoice. So here again now, he's going to turn to that theme for, by the way, the seventh and the final time in this book. This theme of joy and enjoying life. So think about that. Think about that for a moment. We've seen this theme in the book of Ecclesiastes seven times now, where he's commanding Joy. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 9. Seven times. And he mentions it here in several different ways. Look in verse 7. Light is sweet and is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. In other words, it is good to be alive. Life is good. As hard as it is at times, it's good. In fact, notice he says it's sweet and pleasant. It's sweet and pleasant. Which again is, it shows us it's far, this book, from being depressing and pessimistic. No. Life is good. Verse 7, light here is contrasted with darkness. The darkness of old age and death. So enjoy life, he's saying. Verse 8. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity, meaning it's a breath, it's a vapor. It's going to go quickly. So enjoy your life to the utmost because it's brief. 
And in verse 7, look there, the, the, the sweetness, the, the pleasantness of life, I think here it, it's a representative of the many common graces that God gives to us every day. I mean, think about that. There are many things in life that are sweet, many things in life that are pleasant and good. He mentions here, notice in verse 7, sunlight. The sun, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this now where it's dark at 4.30 in the afternoon, right? Miserable, right? The sunlight, what a gift from God. And, and there are many more, food, recreation, companionship. These are all good gifts. And then in verses 8 to 10, look there, he gives us here three ways that we are to enjoy life, how to do it. And he speaks here to both the old and the young. First, notice he speaks to the old. Look there in verse 8. So notice first, he says, rejoice in your old age. Rejoice in your old age. Verse 8. So if a person lives many years, a long time, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So Solomon says, while you may live many days, you, you may live to the ripe old age of 103, like Luke Short. That may be the number of days that God gives you, but verse 8, look there, remember that the days of darkness will be many, and I think the days of darkness here is a reference to death. All that comes is vanity. This life is brief. This life is short. It's a blip, and then it's over. And so Solomon says, if God grants you many days, friend, what should you do with them? Verse 8, rejoice in them all. Every one of those days. Every one of those years. Rejoice in them all. Why? Because, verse 8, the days of darkness will be many. Because death is coming. This life is short, and it's coming soon. It's brief, it's a breath, and then it's over. You see, often, I, I, think, I think so often we take life for granted, don't we? Many of us, myself included oftentimes, we don't enjoy the moment. We don't enjoy the present. Oftentimes, we, we would just soon skip over certain days, or certain years, right? If I, if I could just get past this stage with my children, we think, right? We look forward to the weekend. We look forward to the next vacation. We look forward to that next thing on the calendar. And we're always looking into the future, right? If I can just look forward to retirement, and then, then I can enjoy my life. And Solomon would urge you, don't waste any of those days. And so to my aging brothers and sisters in the room this morning, I'm not going to call you old. I'll let Solomon call you old. I think what Solomon would say is that you need to make a conscious effort right now where you are in life to rejoice in those days. To look at the little common graces every day because there is so much of life as you age that can be hard and filled with sorrow. And here's what happens. It can make you bitter. Have you seen this happen? 
As folks begin to age, what tends to happen? They become bitter. And Solomon says, rejoice. Why? Because the days of darkness will be here before you know it. You will blink and you will be 80. So rejoice in them all. And then he speaks to the young. Look there. Verse 9. Rejoice in your youth. So wake up, young people. You can elbow them now if you need to. And, and I, I really would think this is anybody who isn't old. So I'll let you determine that. Verse 9. Rejoice, O young man or young woman, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Now, when you're young, you don't count your days. You don't, you're not numbering your days, youth, young people. No. You're young, you're invincible, you're going to live forever. But Solomon would commend you as well, young people, to number your days. And to live with joy. And to not waste your youth. Notice his words of advice here, young people. How not to waste your youth. Look there in verse 9. He says, first, what you need to do is you need to pursue joy. Verse 9, rejoice. That's a command. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, meaning pursue joy while you're young. And verse 9, let your heart cheer you. You see, the problem I think so oftentimes with many young people, maybe even people my age, as well, is that we miss opportunities for joy because we're ungrateful. I think that's something oftentimes, sadly, that comes with age, gratefulness. And notice Solomon says it's about fostering this attitude of joy in your heart. It's, it's, notice he says it isn't about having a lot of things that makes you joyful, that makes you happy in life. He's tried all of that. And he says, no, no, that's not going to make you happy. It's not going to bring you joy in life. Notice, no, he says in verse 9, let your heart cheer you. This is a joy that flows from your heart of gratitude and gratefulness for what God has given to you. So young people, let me just encourage you to, to cultivate a heart right now in your youth of gratitude and thankfulness for what God has given to you. And, and, and you will never live joyfully in life if you don't see it all as a gift of God's grace to you. The fact that you don't wake up tomorrow in hell is a gift of grace. Next, he says to young people, look there, make your joy, though, a God-centered pursuit. Young people, you won't find joy. Friends, all of us, this is all of us, we won't find joy in this life apart from God. We won't find it in the things of this world. No, Ecclesiastes has shown us that. But in God. Look at verse 9. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. So enjoy life. Pursue joy. Rejoice in the days of your youth. It almost sounds like he's saying follow your heart and do whatever you please. But then he comes very quickly behind that. Notice. 
And he balances that statement in verse 9 and he says, but know that for all of these things, all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. This is a very God-centered pursuit here of joy. So this enjoyment of life, it doesn't give you a license to live however you want, but a God-centered pursuit of joy. Knowing that he will judge you for how you live and the decisions you make and the things you treasure and the things that you live for and everything you do matters. Everything you do. We, we live under the gaze of a good God, but a holy God. And he will bring you into judgment. And so the call, young people, I think is to cultivate a heart of thankfulness and gratitude for God's grace and pursue joy and live for his glory while you're young. Why? Because the days of your youth are soon going to be over and you don't want to look back and say, I wasted those years. I was talking to somebody just this last week who said, I wish I had not wasted so many years of my life and lived for God and His glory. Studied His Word. Spent time pursuing Him. Serving others. Serving in the church. Living for what matters. So it's a God-centered pursuit of joy. But then notice that The third, final thing he says to the young people, and this would go for all of us too in verse 10, flee anxiety. Flee anxiety. Look there, verse 10. Vexation, he calls it. There's the word of the day. Vexation. It means anxiety. Solomon says we are to remove it from our lives. Verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. They're brief. Isn't it true that that, that you can worry about so many things in life that don't ultimately matter? Remove it, he says. And I think heart and body here, he means just the entire person. Now, of course, he's not saying you won't have trouble and pain in life, but what do you do with that? Look what he says. You get rid of it. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Why? Because God will care for you. He clothes the lilies. He feeds the birds. He's going to care for you. Or Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but what? Make your requests known to God. Why? Because He will care for you. And the peace of God will rule your heart, he says. He's going to care for you. So don't be anxious about it. He's sovereign. And anxiety will rob you of joy and rejoicing in life. And beloved, I think the fact here that this is the seventh and final call to joy in this letter, it should tell us something, right? Here's what it should tell us. You know what it tells us about the meaning of life? I mean, isn't that what this book is all about? I don't know if you ask questions like this. Why did God make the world? Why make a world full of physical and sensual and emotional and relational pleasures? Why would he do that? Because he is a God of joy. 
And all of those things are meant to point you to him. And it's the reality that you will not find ultimate joy in this life apart from knowing him. Which leads to the final heading I want you to see. We remember our creator as we age. We remember our creator as we age. Verses 1 to 8 of chapter 12. And here now, very poetically, speaking to the, the older, the elderly, Solomon wants us to contemplate, and this would be even the young, I think, too. He wants us to contemplate and think about getting old. In fact, this is actually one single lengthy poetic sentence from verse 1 to verse 7. One sentence. And his intention here is I think he wants to vividly engage us at an emotional level. That's why it's poetry. He, he wants us to really stop and he wants us to think about what is it going to be like to get old? And then we'll see why I think he wants us to think about this in just a moment. So what does it look like to age? We'll look there first. Notice in verse 1, the dark days. The dark days. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. We'll come back to that command in just a second. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. I think this is what it means to get old. The evil days here could also be translated days of trouble. They're days full of pain. They're days full of suffering. Your body is wearing out. This is a description of old age. And of course, ultimately, the day approaching the day of death that is drawing near. Because then, notice in verses 2 to 5, this very vivid description, this poetic picture of the aging process. Look there. Notice the darkness of old age as we decline physically. Verses 2 to 5. Look there in verse 2. Before the sun and the night and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. These, these are the heavenly bodies that we see here from under the sun. But there is coming a day when it's going to be darkened. Meaning what? You're not going to see them anymore. Why? You're gone. It's over. End of life. And then look there, verse 3. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble. So this once vibrant home, the keepers of the house, now notice they are, they are growing old. And as they grow old, these once strong bodies are beginning to tremble. Shaking. Right? Or verse 3. The strong men are bent. So these men who were once big and strong, they're now hunched over. They're now bent over. Their legs can't support the weight of their bodies any longer. Verse 3, the grinders cease because they are few. Their teeth are falling out. And their remaining teeth can't even chew because they're so few. I think that's what he means. The grinders have ceased. Maybe you have experienced this where your body it just can't do what it used to could do. And it's not bouncing back as quickly as it once did. <laughs> not as strong as you once were. Verse 3. Those who look through the windows are dimmed. I think this is probably a reference here to eyesight. 
As you age, your eyesight begins to go bad. Mine's going bad. I'm having to up prescriptions. Vision is declining. It's like looking through dim windows. And not only that, not only your eyesight goes bad, but your hearing goes bad. Look at verse 4. The doors of the street are shut. I think this is the ears. You're having trouble hearing. Because then he says, when the sound of the grinding is low, I mean, it's so bad you can't even hear yourself chewing. And this is the real problem as you age. Look there. One rises up at the sound of the bird. So, many times you hear old people say something wakes them up in the middle of the night and they can't go back to sleep. So they're so deaf they can't hear anything, but yet they hear a bird tweeting and it wakes them up and they can't go back to sleep. That's getting old. Verse 4, all the daughters of song are brought low. This could be a reference back to the daughters in chapter 2, the singers that he accumulated and now their voices aren't working. Or it just could be you can't hear them anymore. Verse 5, they're afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The older you get, the less likely you are to brave heights and climb a ladder. <laughs> Why? The fear of falling. Verse 5, fears are in the way. There's greater risk of getting hurt, greater risk of falling, greater risk of illness as you age. Verse 5, I see this happening to many of you. <laughs> The almond tree blossoms. As you know, the almond tree produces white flowers. And as you age, this white stuff starts sprouting. <laughs> starts blossoming from your head and your eyebrows and your ears as you age. And verse 5, while at one time, your life, you may have had energy and agility of a grasshopper. Now look at verse 5. The grasshopper's dragging himself along, right? This is the loss of mobility, the, the giddy-up that was once in your step, and now you're dragging yourself along like a grasshopper. Verse 5, desire fails. Probably a reference to your appetite. I remember when my grandmother was getting older, all she wanted to eat was cake. <laughs> could be sexual desire. could be the desire to work. It's waning. Why? Your body's decaying. You're getting old. It's wearing out. And death is near. Look at verse 5. Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the street. So notice death is so close now that the mourners are already making their way to your funeral. And then, then comes the moment and it will happen to all of us. The reality, verses 6 and 7, that death will overtake you. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So this life that was once young, it was once full of energy and promise and hope. Just yesterday, you had so much time left and now it's gone. It's destroyed. In fact, notice he pictures it here as shattering on the ground, spilling out like water. The cord is snapped. It's broken beyond repair. Death is final. Death is irreversible. And in verse 7, look there, we return to dust. The dust returns to the earth as it was. We were made from dust. 
and we return to dust. In fact, we have Solomon's notice, final parting words to us in verse 8. Because the narrator of the book is then going to speak to us next time in verses 9 to 14. So here's Solomon's concluding word to you. And it's, he, le- he ends right where he began back in chapter 1, verse 2. Look at this bookend in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And beloved, let me say to you that that's exactly what this life can feel like. It can feel so vain from the vantage point here of under the sun. We just live and we die and it's over. So what are we to do? If this is the inevitable end for us all, how do we age well? And I, I think Solomon gives here two reminders as he concludes here. His parting words, his last words to you. Two reminders, I think, that will serve as an encouragement and an exhortation to you, no matter where you are in life. No matter where you are on that age spectrum. Two reminders. Let me give them to you and we'll be done. Number one. Reminder number one. Remember your Creator. Remember your Creator, verse one. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. This is a command This is an exhortation. Remember. So in verses 2 to 8 then, with this picture of death and aging and decaying, he wants us to see, yes, the fleeting nature of this life. It's short. And you're going to die. But also, there is something else he wants us to see. Notice, Notice the three befores he gives there. Did you notice those? Verse 1, remember your Creator before the days of evil come. Verse 2, remember your Creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. Verse 6, remember your Creator before the silver cord is snapped and you return to the dust. Notice those three befores. Do you see them? What, What is Solomon saying? He's saying, yes, remember how fleeting this life is, but... With these three befores here, he also wants to push your eyes back to what comes before the befores. And what comes before them? Well, look there. That command in verse 1. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And make no mistake about it there. Youth there means those who aren't dead or dying. So the command in verse 1 And this vivid description in verses 2 to 8, it isn't intended to be this dark, morbid, introspective picture of dying and getting old, but a radical call to remember God all the days of your life. To live all of life in light of the reality of your Creator. And I love there how he calls Him your Creator. Why? Well, I think it's because he wants us to understand here is the reason for your existence. Here is why you're on the earth. There is a Creator who has made you. And He's made you for Himself. This is why you exist. And your purpose and your meaning in life, it will only be discovered in relationship to Him. 
So it's a wake-up call. Remember your Creator. Remember there is a Creator who created you. And all of us have chosen to rebel against this Creator. And that relationship with this Creator was severed. And death and decay and the curse of sin now on this creation that we've seen in Ecclesiastes. And we stand under the condemnation of this holy Creator. But this Creator became a Redeemer. And He lived a perfect life. And He died a sinner's death and He rose from the dead so that you could be reconciled to this Creator that you will stand before one day. And let me just say to those in the room this morning who would say, Pastor, though, I have wasted so many years of my life. I want to say, remember your Creator, but remember your Savior and your Redeemer. He was the thief on the cross, if you remember. What, what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Lived all his life, the moment of death. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Why? Not because of what he did, but because of his Redeemer. So, remember him before this life is older. Don't waste your life, is what he's saying. There's a, there's a, there's a, a saying on a, on a plaque on the wall of my office by a guy named C.T. Studd. What a name. C.T. Studd. And he was, he was a famous cricket player, came from a very wealthy family, British cricket player, and then he gave it all up to become a missionary. And I wanted the quote on my wall to look at it often. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Remember your Creator. Second, last one. I mean, is this, is this a depressing picture in verses 1 to 7 to you? Here's the second reminder, because you may have missed it. You, it seems a little hidden. Here's the second reminder. When you die, you are going home. Look at verse 5. Because man is going to his eternal home. Death is not the end. It is a homecoming. Verse 7. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So the story doesn't end in death. And this world isn't your home, Christian. Because the reality is that for those of us who are trusting in Christ and His righteousness, sin and death have been defeated. And when you take that final breath, and you will, you will enter into the presence of your Creator and you will be home. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your word would cause us to think rightly about you, about this life, and about our Savior, Redeemer, the one who has conquered sin and death, the one in whom we have life, the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Born that man no more may die. Born 
to raise the sons of earth. That's what we're longing for, Lord. We're looking for his coming. We're looking for the day when we will see Jesus face to face. And in the meantime, Lord, may we live boldly. May we live courageously. May we get to work about your kingdom here now in the days that we have. In Christ's name we pray. We're encouraged Amen. by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.